Thank you, as always, for listening to Caleb vs. Self. On this episode, I get a chance to talk to John Crump, director of the Virginia GOA, investigative journalist for AMLand.com, and on YouTube at John Crump Live and John Crump News. We talk about his work as an investigative journalist, including an in-depth article he did on Adam Lankford's study of mass shootings, his FEC complaint filed against Facebook Kamala Harris, and some more commentary on a picture that was allegedly David Chipman. Uh, there's a whole bunch more stuff in there. Hopefully you get a chance to listen to the whole podcast. Also, check out John Crump if you're interested in Second Amendment stuff. Check him out at John Crump Live, John Crump News, and his journals, or his articles, I should say, on AnnaLand.com. Hopefully you guys enjoy the episode. said it twice already but i'll say it again anyway john thanks for hopping on i have john crump with me uh second amendment rights uh investigative journalist uh director of the virginia goa uh find him at crumpy.com ammo.com as well as his youtube channels you got a whole bunch of stuff going on uh, you even have a book uh, but let me get started more importantly with what is it at this point that continues to drive you to writing on reporting on it being such a huge uh activists in the Second Amendment community? Well, writing on and reporting on is the search for truth. I believe that journalists should be searching for truth. And if you read my articles and you read some of the comments, you have people on both sides, the pro-gun side saying, hey, stop selling out to the anti-gunners. Then you read the people on the anti-gun side writing that, oh, I'm a gun nut. And when I see that, that lets me know that I'm probably over the target because the truth is usually somewhere in the middle. We live in a world of gray, even though we like to see it as black and white. So I like to give the facts. I don't put too much of my own opinion into the articles. I mean, some does seep through. I, I, I cannot deny that. If, if I deny that, I would be just as guilty as a lot of other people. But I let my biases be known, and I try to avoid pinning my biases into my writing as much as possible, just pinning out the facts and letting the readers decide what they take away from it. So, and first and foremost, that's unique, I will say, right? In a lot of the stories that you talk about, you try to do your best to cite things. You do reference other materials and works that people can also check out if they're further interested in a particular story, which is really cool. But absolutely. I mean, for me, it sends me right down the rabbit hole, but I don't know how other people are. Well, that's the that's the point. The point is I usually give my sources and I give all the information. I think there's too much um, articles out there and too many reporters out there that don't say where they get their facts from and they don't say where they get their stats from. They say, here, here they are, believe me, and this is what they are. I believe that I should be able to say, this is where I got them from. You want to double check me? Go double check me. Because, you know, trust but verify, Reagan used to say that. And I believe that's the way we have to look at news today on both sides, because both sides do this hyperbolic thing where they 
you know, demonize the other side and then they twist stats and statistics to fall into line with their beliefs. And they're more of arguing their beliefs than saying, hey, here's something right here. And I don't want to tell you everything. So go find it out yourself. A lot of my articles I end with, um, you know, I, I'm not here to make a judgment. I'm here to give give the facts. It is you. It is for your job to go out there and look at all the facts and decide what the truth is. So, at the end of the day, you feel that in a specifically, well, any journalist really is responsible for providing the facts up front and then denoting whether or not they have an opinion on the subject, and to make it clear that hey, here are the facts. Here's potentially how I feel about it. Or do you feel like the job of a reporter is to stick strictly to the facts? Okay. Well, it's kind of a double-edged sword. I try to stick directly to the facts without giving my feelings. I will give my feelings on certain things. And that is not to say, hey, you need to feel the way I do. It is to say, hey, here's, here's my feelings. This is what I believe. Because rereading it it probably came out a little bit more than i would like it to and i've tried over and over again to take it out as much as possible but it's still in there so i want to be upfront and honest where i'm coming from with the readers so if there's a slant the readers should know about it it's very very hard to do true fair and balanced reporting because your own feelings is going to seep in somehow. Yeah, we so, all have a natural bias, right? Yeah. So the fair way to do it is to say, here is my natural bias, and here's the article. So one of the articles that you wrote that I that I want to specifically point to that you actually, I feel, do it, did a pretty good job about it is on Land. it's Adam Lankford's study of mass shootings called into question where, you know, obviously you're making the claim there that you, no one can get the data that is purported in that specific study that a lot of people apparently are citing. And then you go one step further even to point to the crime research or I'm sorry. Yeah. Crimeresearch.org numbers to corroborate some level of data in that story. Yeah. And that story, I went back and forth with Adam Lankford trying to get his sources. Cause if you read his study, it's not a peer review study and it doesn't give where he gets his data from. And I went back and forth with them saying, I, I, I want to know where you get this data from. Where's this data? Because I looked at the FBI statistics. I looked everywhere and couldn't find this anywhere. In fact, I found numbers that contradicted his numbers. Uh, and Adam Linkford refused to tell me where he got it from, basically telling me that I, I could go try to find it myself. And uh, <laughs> that's not something that you, you want to do. If you ask me where I got my numbers from, I... Bam, there it is. You know, and that was kind of disheartening to me because even people on the opposite side of the issue um, that I am, I I will respect you if you say, oh, here is my data. Instead of saying, I'm not going to tell you where I got this information from and no peer review study out there. And no statistic out there backs up what I'm saying. You just have to believe me. And I don't think that is true. Yeah. Well, 
especially in that specific environment. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, he is in the academic fields. It should be a peer-reviewed study. And you even looked at specifically, well, if it's not peer-reviewed, then who paid for the study? Because, I mean, if it's a publicly funded study, then academically it should go through some type of review, correct? Yeah, I believe so. Um, if it's a publicly funded study, I believe that it should go through some type of academic review. I'm a big fan of peer review studies. I'm a huge fan of peer review studies because to me, it's getting to the truth of the issue. Mm-hmm. And when a professor refuses to submit his publicly funded studies to be peer reviewed, that kind of calls it into question a little bit. Not saying that the information is there and there is wrong or anything. It's just, I can't find it. And he won't tell me where all this information comes, what studies are cited, what other studies are cited. It's just say, what type of research did, did they do? It's a bunch of statistics thrown in there and there's no backup. I mean, I could write a study tonight saying that lip gloss is radioactive doesn't mean it's radioactive but i'm going to be called on that and there is a lot of people in positions of power in academia or whatnot in the media too who state stuff that's never called into question and i've called out our own side on this um the the pro-gun side saying you gotta list this or this is wrong for example the picture going around of david chipman um, of purported picture of David Chipman at Waco. That wasn't David Chipman. And I called out a lot of people for saying that that was David Chipman. And I did a lot of research. I tracked down where it came from. I tracked down that it was a member of the FBI sniper team. And also that it wasn't David Chipman. Um, and I got attacked a little bit because of that, because people were like, why are you pointing out this isn't David Chipman? And my answer is because it's not David Chipman. You know, when you fight against something that you feel is unjust and a lot of stuff that David Chipman does, I, let's be honest, almost all the stuff David Chipman believes I'm against, but you got to attack him with truth. There's enough there on Chipman to attack him on his actual beliefs and everything. Then to attack him on a picture. I even tracked down where that picture came from. The Daily Mail reported that to be David Chipman. They got it from a lawsuit that one of the Waco survivors filed against the federal government. And they pulled all the pictures and they were looking through it and they said, hey, that looks like David Chipman. And, that, and, that and was it, huh? they ran it of David Chipman and everyone called him David Chipman. And I looked at it, I was like, it looks like him. But I'm not going to put out an article or use it in any of my articles or mention it in my articles until I can definitely, definitely figure out it, if it is him or if it's not. And that's interesting because you put that, that was on John Corp News. You did a, a video on that, also asking for people to help you out a little bit and see if they could corroborate whether or not that was Chipman. And just to give a little background yep. to the story, Chipman is, if I'm not mistaken, somebody who is up for a federal nominated position here if not already correct yeah uh the vote's actually tomorrow which is thursday um june 17th i'm not sure when this will release but he is the nominee for head of the atf 
which is very interesting considering that he is an anti-gun lobbyist. He actually works for Giffords, mm-hmm. um, and he helped Mike Bloomberg set up Mayors Against Illegal Guns, which became every town. Not only that, he has some really radical beliefs that are like really outside the mainstream of a lot of people. For example, um, magazines. He wants to reg- regulate magazines. Magazines, if you don't know, is the thing that holds the rounds, the ammunition. He wants to regulate those as machine guns, which there, there's no way you can read the regulation of what a machine gun is and think it's a magazine. Sure, sure. Especially given you know how magazines actually operate and all the different capacities that you could potentially have with a given magazine and the fact that you could just print magazines. So I don't know how many you're going to regulate them if they can just be, you know, 3d printed at this point, but that's neither here nor there. I guess my point specifically with talking about this is in my next question is, is that given the fact that, that obviously Chipman is on one side of this argument, you, I would assume, right. I think it's a safe assumption. You're on the other side of said argument. Absolutely. I'm very open about that, (laughs) (laughs) but, with all that being said, you're still going and saying, look, guys, there are better ways to go about defeating or, you know, overcoming whatever obstacle Chipman presents to you than making up the fact that he was at Waco through this picture. Well, he was at Waco. Oh, was he? Okay. It was, he, was, he was not in that picture. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I was able to confirm he was at Waco, but that wasn't him in the picture. So, yeah, there there's a lot of better ways to do it. So why would people in your community specifically give you such a hard time about a picture then? Uh, because like in any community, whether it's a gun community or any community, when you when there's something that's so perfect that says, hey, look, this guy is evil, and look, he's posing with dead bodies or whatnot. That was the thing that people were saying. That was so perfect and so to the point that they could point to it and be like, hey, look, I told you he was evil. Instead of building a case of why, I don't think he's evil, by the way, but I'm sure, just saying sure. that was the thing. But instead of building a case of why he should not be the ATF head, it's a lot easier when the answer is right there instead of having to actually work for the answers. And a lot of people come into this with a preconceived notion of what they want to believe. And I am for the fact that what you believe should be challenged because it would either make your belief stronger because, Hey, I went through a challenge and it made my belief stronger, or it might make you think about your beliefs and think, Hey, maybe I'm wrong. In this case, I believe that this was such a perfect example of who David Chipman is that everyone wanted to believe that that was a picture of him because it made the case against him so much easier to prove by that one picture. That's fascinating. Just, just the fact that you've got somebody, or I should say, I have somebody here that is coming from the perspective of challenging one's preconceived notions so that either you will come out the other side feeling that your idea, belief, etc., is that strong, or you may find some other facts or other information that may slightly change your stance on something, et cetera, et cetera. Where, at least in this whole process, with being such an avid Second Amendment supporter, did you feel most challenged in your belief with 
the right to bear arms, the Second Amendment? I've challenged myself a lot with the belief by going up against other people and looking at their statistics. Um, I've never wavered in in my support of the of the Second Amendment, and the right to bear arms. I believe that it's fundamentally a human right to be able to defend yourself and to choose what you defend yourself with. I've also read a lot of. Uh, Federalist Papers, uh, read a lot of the writings of Madison and Jefferson and even Washington to some extent on gun ownership. And so I think I know what the founding fathers were saying. And I'm also a big fan of Locke and stuff like that, which he doesn't deal with firearms exactly. But some of the stuff that he does say about like individualism and stuff like that can be applied directly to that. And I think Madison, when he was writing um, the Second Amendment, took a lot of inspiration from Locke. And I know Jefferson did, too. And if you even read the Federalist Papers or even the writings of Jefferson, you can see what they were talking about with the Second Amendment. And there's no gray area in there to say that the Second Amendment is about a standing army is just false. And if you read... um. Madison or the Federalist Papers, which I encourage everyone to read the Federalist Papers because it talks more about just guns. It talks about a lot of the stuff in the Constitution. And like my thoughts on legalization of drugs have changed a lot. I'm not a drug user and never use drugs, but sure. uh, my thoughts on the legalization of drugs over years have changed by reading what the founding fathers talked about what people like John Locke has talked about, Thomas Paine talked about. Um, and it seems kind of weird to apply that to something like drugs. But then again, you you can take what they're talking about, other stuff, and apply it to whatever. And yeah, it it kind of helps me look at that. And also, like for drugs, for example, I've looked at other places that decriminalized them, like Sweden and stuff like that. And I look at and see how successful they've been compared to a prohibition on drugs. Um, sure. And so I, I look at the, I, I, there, it's a couple different things. It's not like a zero film game, of course, but I look at the, the perspective outcome. And then I also look at the detrimental, the de detriments to freedom. And with guns, one of the things I looked at, I looked at a lot of studies, like for the assault weapons ban. Um, I looked at a lot of studies, including one that was done under the Obama Justice Department. And it basically said that the assault weapons ban from that went uh, from uh, 1994 into the early 2000s had almost zero effect on 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 gun deaths or anything else so it's being pushed again and that leads me to the question of why is it being pushed again if we have you know like 10 years of studies showing that it's not really effective so um my so getting back to your question my belief in the second amendment has never really wavered i've been challenged but I've always been able to rise to the challenge and look at it and come out 
usually stronger in my beliefs because I allowed myself to actually say, maybe I'm wrong about this. Let's have a conversation. Tell me why you believe the things you do. Tell me where your sources are. And taking that in and listening and going back and doing the research. Because I think a lot of people get into this thing where they want to defend their position. So they debate. And debates are great and everything. But when you debate, you're not really exchanging ideas. It's a conf, uh, I don't know, adversarial approach to it. Yeah. Instead yeah. of an exchange of ideas. And I would much rather have an exchange of ideas than go into some adversarial approach. I mean, I have been in there and I have I, I have taken the adversarial approach, but those are usually to people who are come at me from an adversarial approach. And there's other people that are on the fence that are there. And, you know, you have to defend your position in that case. But I would much rather have a conversation and an exchange of ideas. And let me let me hear what you believe and why you believe that. And taking that in and then checking my own beliefs against that and seeing, well, maybe, maybe you know something I don't that would change my opinion. Yeah. Because people who are stuck with their opinions and, and they don't change, I think that's dangerous. And I think we see that a lot today out there. Yeah, I, you're 100% right, I feel like, about that. I feel like the art of conversation has been lost. You know, we can't just have a friendly exchange of ideas, even if we disagree, because it turns into this adversarial conversation of me against you or your tribe against my tribe. And, you know, Lord help me if I lose this, because if I lose this, I lose a sense of my identity. And I feel like a lot of people have tied their identity to a specific set of, whether it be beliefs or, or structures. I also feel like that's very true in any community, but just as much in the 2A community that people tie their complete identities to having this right or fighting for this right. Do you ever have to um, have those type of tougher conversations with folks in your own community, kind of pulling them maybe away from uh, a fringe or two? Because in the reason why I put it in that context is because the 2A community is a rather large community here in America. And naturally, if you have such a large community, that's going to intersect with other communities, right? Um, in this case, if I'm just being uh, stereotypical, I imagine there are folks that might be Proud Boys or might be, you know, some other type of fringe or fringy type of, of belief system that also intersect with, with Second Amendment rights. Do you have those conversations? Do you run into people like that? How does that happen? Well... Well, believe it or not, yes, sure. there are Proud Boys and other people in the 2A community that are like that. Um, so I'm not going to deny that. But the 2A community is a lot bigger and a lot more open than what people think think it is. Uh, one of my friends, uh, Chris Chang, is on the cover of Recoil Magazine coming up for this month. And Chris Chang is an Asian man who happens to be gay. Um, and he's on the cover of Recoil. Um, and it's Pride Month, so that's why, why they chose him. Um, but he's also a great guy, for one thing. And he's very, very, very pro-2A. And we also have other people out there. Um, one of my friends, um, 
Adele, she is big into gun rights and she's transgender, for example. Uh, and then I have uh, one of my really close friends, Devin, is African American. And I have, you know, I do a lot of stuff. Well, like one of the sponsorships I have with the podcast is African American gun ownership. <laughs> so I sponsor <laughs> one of those. Mm -hmm. So the two A communities a lot bigger and if you haven't experienced a 2a community go out there range because there's this stereotypical view that the 2a community is middle-aged white men and i'm a middle-aged white guy but there is <laughs> sure there is a lot uh, a lot of people don't know this but eric pratt who basically is like the head of goa the face of goa his mother is from south america um and our director of outreach is not a middle-aged white man. She's she's not white. She's not middle-aged. She's not. And she's not a man. Sure, so, sure. But, but for there, Chang, there, for example, there was public pushback on that. Yeah, there was public pushback on that, and I will agree that there was public pushback. Most of the pushback was due to people thinking that recoil was pandering. Um to a woke crowd. Um, so that's why there was pushback against that. There wasn't a lot. I mean, there was some pushback because he was uh, a homosexual, but most of the pushback was them thinking that recoil was pushing back to a woke crowd um, and was trying to pander, trying to get points with the left, which I don't think that's what they were doing. But with like, companies like coke doing their uh training or whatever that was about and some other companies like that they were afraid that recoil was falling down the same rabbit hole at gotcha. the same time i think recoil did that pin them on the cover to get a reaction i will say that well i mean that is part of their job right to get eyes on papers or eyes on magazines yeah and it, and it worked i'm not i'm not shaming them for it but <laughs> yeah and to be fair, right, in, in defense of you, you did tweet out and you did, you know, put out your support for him. So um, certainly not yeah. trying to dig at you or anything. Yeah, but it's somebody, was ask yeah somebody was asking me, um, why are you going all woke? Why are you supporting, why, why, why are you supporting uh, this guy because he's gay? And my response was, I'm not supporting him because he's gay. I'm supporting him because he's my friend. So, so those conversations do come up and you address them they just do. like you do any yeah, other I, I, thing, right? Yeah, I don't hide. I don't try to play nice guy or, you know, try to play cutesy with, oh, I'm not going to tell you how I feel. Sure, sure. Well, given the space that you're in and in your writings, I don't think you have the luxury to do that even. <laughs> no, you feel I, I don't have the luxury. I don't have the luxury and I don't have the will i would never ever pander to anyone to get anything yeah i mean you I, seem, I will always always say my piece yeah you seem staunch in your beliefs and you're what's what i like the most so far about reading your work and listening to a lot of stuff you're talking about is again like you said before you're not going to um tribalize things if you will this isn't a you against me this is a i want to have a conversation i feel very strongly about my beliefs because i've put them through the ringer so many times and it's come out the other end 
you've refined that process so you feel comfortable voicing your opinion and doing it in such a way that isn't adversarial in a lot of your work. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, tri- tribalism is something that I think that we fall into a lot uh, in this country and not only in this country, but in this world. And I think we need to move away from tribalism. You can't have a 100% aligning views with almost anyone else. Right. Just not going to happen. But people pretend like they do. It's a very human thing, though, right? To get into a tribe, to be a part of a group. That's a that's a hard thing for us to get away from, I feel like. Not to say that it wouldn't be good, because I, I agree. I think that it's necessary, but it's hard to do. Yeah, it, it is hard to do for me. Um, I've never really been a joiner, I should say. Sure. So it's not as hard for me to do as a lot of other people. I don't know if it's just the way my mind works and whatnot. I have a real issue with authority. <laughs> so, okay. Well, that's so a, uh, joining groups isn't usually working out too well for me. That's a very American thing, though, you know, and I feel like that's also interwoven into our identity with freedom and specifically with owning and bearing arms. I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, culturally speaking, we do have a very strong link to to weapons, and I feel like a lot of that is because I mean, starting from the inception of our country, having a weapon has bent, has meant you have the ability to be on the side of your own personal freedom, whether it be in 1776, whether it be, you know, moving out westward, uh, what, you know, whatever the case may be. That's That's been a strong tie into our culture. Do you feel like that's something that still remains today? Or do you feel like the 2A community has shifted to kind of a different perspective on that? No, I th- I definitely do think it remains strong today. And uh, for example, even people who like a year ago, two years ago, um, I saw like I-, I used to work at Facebook and I had a coworker who was like really, really anti-gun, you know, was like, no one needs a gun. No one needs sure. a gun. Uh, and then I saw him, I guess, uh, July of 2020 for the first time in like a couple of years walking into a range with a rifle case. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I was like, what do you have in there? He's like, Oh, I got my AR and, and my Glock. I was like, I thought you were against guns. He was like, yeah, I've been meaning to talk to you about that. I think I was wrong. Um, and uh, I'm also a member of GOA now. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. But it also it shows that, you know, it is American to own guns, and it is an and it, it is very American thing, and it's not about the gun; it's about the will of being independent, the feeling of being independent. It's about independence. It's bred into our nature as an American. We are taught that independence is something that is great, and. I've talked to people from other countries, like uh, one of my really close friends is from India, and he's like, we don't have that over there. Right. That, that, and this is something that he thinks is awesome over here, is how everything is about independence over here and you know self-determination and stuff like that. Where where he's from, it it's not. You're a member of a, uh, a family name. Uh, and whatever that family name is, what cast you're in, and that's where you stay. 
And he, and that's why he wants to become an American is because that feeling of independence. I have another friend who is Russian. His name is Slava. I call him my crazy Russian friend. He um, actually came over during the Cold War. He defected to the United States. And he has that like that strong feeling of independence. And that's one of the things that he likes about this country is the self-determination and the self-reliance that um, he didn't get back in the former Soviet Union. And the one is not an American, but working on becoming American. The other one's American citizen now. And they hold American values more than most people born in this country. And I think it's because they saw what's on the other side. Yeah, I mean, they haven't had to go through uh, either A, the opposite of having this type of freedom, or B, never having to actually defend or be put in harm's way to do, um, to, to set up people to have that type of freedom. I'm sure that factors in heavily, you know, being from a country that doesn't have that, that type of stuff. Yeah, well, yeah, especially uh, like the former Soviet Union. Um, I also know a guy that escaped from North Korea, um, and he talks about the depotism over there and stuff like that and how much control they had. And I asked him, it's like, how did you get, like, unbrainwashed? And his answer was, I, I got an illegal radio was able to receive broadcast. And then I realized everything I was told was a lie. And he was a fisherman and, you know, right. got away. Right. That's. Do you meet people like that through your time as, as being a journalist? Or, or how do you meet people like that? Is that through GOA, through your, your local gun community? or? Uh, it's a couple different ways. It's one, for me... Being a journalist, I seek out these people because I do a lot of interviews and stuff like that. And even just for my own thing, I want to know what their experiences were and what they, they they have been through. Because the human condition is something that really fascinates me. And the human stories, every everybody has their own story. Mm -hmm. And every story is fascinating. Some people think that their lives is boring but if you look at some of the stuff you've been through, it's like, yeah, maybe our lives aren't as boring as what we think they are. You always hear some someone say, well, you know, that life should be a movie. Well, anyone's life could be a movie because there's some really crazy stuff that happens in everyone's lives. And also the area that I live in. I live in the Washington, D.C. area, which just happens to have a lot of uh, people like that, um, that now work for our federal government that come from other people's country, other countries and stuff like that as well. And it's a very high tech area. So anyone who works in tech usually comes through here. Like, as well. I mean, so it's in your capacity of, of Facebook, right? What, what did you do at Facebook specifically? If you I was, if uh, I can ask, <laughs> yeah, 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 you can ask. I was an engineer. I did uh, network engineering, data center design, uh, network security, also some coding as well. For uh, people think Facebook is just located in Menlo Park out in California, but Facebook is located everywhere. We have offices in North, 
well, Facebook, it still says we sometimes, but Facebook have offices in North Carolina, D.C., uh, Washington, Iowa. I mean, they have all over massive the place. data centers, I assume, in so many different locations. Yeah, massive data centers, massive different companies. Uh, they own tons and tons of companies. Uh, just a bunch of different things everywhere. Um, but I got to meet a lot of people. And that's one of the things that kind of showed me the way Facebook was going. And I kind of had to get out. Well, because well, it, can you elaborate on that? Like, what do you, what exactly did you feel was coming down the pipeline? Looking at the internal boards and looking at the people making the decisions at Facebook, it was a very small majority of them making the most noise and the decisions. And most of those people were, were from the Menlo Park, Silicon Valley area. One of the things that was disturbing to me is that a lot of them looked down on other people as like the uneducated masses. They had this like kind of better than thou attitude. And also they viewed a lot of people that weren't extreme left as being extreme right, even the people in the middle. And I think part of the reason is that those people lived in the Silicon Valley area, which is extremely left-leaning. So the center being in the center in Silicon Valley is way to the left at almost everywhere else in the country. Mm-hmm. And I think that they just got in that uh, that mind space that, hey, the whole country is like this. So I, I'm a little bit left, but I'm not that far left, even though that the country, most of the country, they are that far left. And there was, which disturbed me, but not as much as other things. Like Facebook was always about like, you know, we're going to let people go right up to the limit without stopping them. We're not going to tell them what to believe or whatnot. And I started seeing stuff like, Hey, well, you know, we need to shut this down or we need to shut that down. And some of the stuff they were shutting down, it was just a difference of ideas and not really anything dangerous. It wasn't like shutting down dangerous groups, which they claimed and they did shut down some dangerous groups, but they also shut down a lot of other groups that had no danger to them. VCDL for God's sakes was shut down by Facebook and VCDL is the Virginia local gun rights group, which is a registered lobbying organization that's never called for violence. They're not like a militia or anything else like that. There is like, they're like GOA on the state level. And there were other state-level gun rights groups that were shut down. And one of the things that I thought was really disturbing is when they were like, we were, we're monitoring VCDL lobby day to see who was there. And I was like, well, I was there. <laughs> and uh, like, I know other people from Facebook were there. We're, so, we're not a danger, guys. Right. So in, in and, this case, you had... 
a corporation, a private entity monitoring yeah. who was attending a Yeah, they were, they were looking for groups that were attending the VCDL rally uh, lobby day. Um and they and they talked about how you know you know tens of thousands of gun owners standing up for the second amendment was a scary thing when it it wasn't I mean, it was like we're, if you went there there was no violence there was one arrest and it was an arrest that had something to do with somebody that wasn't even part of the rally and it was a mask violation which which back then you couldn't wear a mask right <laughs> now it's like totally different right now it's completely normal um yeah so for you, you eventually got kicked off of Facebook, right? Your personal account, if I'm not mistaken? Yes, I got kicked off. My personal account got banned. Um, what happened with that is one of my good friends, uh, Rachel Malone, wrote an article that ran in the Houston Current about Kamala Harris and her stating that the Second Amendment was not an individual right. The AFP, which is the uh, French-funded, the French government-funded equivalent of the AP, is a trusted Facebook fact-checker, and they marked that as false. So I was like, wait, I thought we were supposed to start stop governments from interfering in our elections. And plus, that's not false. <laughs> that's True. There, she filed an amicus brief in the Heller case saying that the individual does not have a right to bear arms. So what I did is I posted just her amicus brief, a link to the amicus brief off uh, the court's website. And that got marked as false, too. It's like, so, so they, you think that they, a, the amicus brief from the Heller case that you just posted a link to yeah, is marked with no as context. False. With no context. Yeah, with no, no context whatsoever. That was marked as so, false. So I contacted Facebook. of like, look, I need a comment. I'm going to write about foreign election interference by the French this time. And here's the proof. So I sent them all the proof. I was like, would you like to comment? They said no comment. They removed all the false stuff on there. You know, all the, all the false flags was all removed overnight. And then they banned me for being a dangerous person. And then you reach out to them again to find out why you got booted, correct? Yeah, I've, I've reached out. Um, the only reason why I know of a dangerous person is that's because what they were told internally, because I had some friends open an internal ticket. of like, why the hell did you ban them? <laughs> you know, we don't agree with him on both things, but there's no reason to ban them. Like, oh, he's a dangerous person. And they're like, why? And they're like, he just is. And then I reached out to him. I was like, why was I banned? And they're like, well, you know what? We're not telling you. You don't have a right to know. Huh. You are no longer eligible to use our platform. And this led to you and GOA filing an FEC complaint against Facebook, correct? Yeah. Yeah, we filed an FEC complaint against Facebook because in my duties as a journalist, I asked them a legitimate question about a French-funded organization, a French government-funded organization, incorrectly fact-checking um, a Kamala Harris thing. 
And then when you clicked on it, made it made it so you couldn't click on it. It put an overlay. So when you clicked on it, it took you to a page that said it was fake and all this other stuff um, without actually addressing the fact that it wasn't fake. And not only wasn't it fake, that in her own words that she wrote that an individual does not have the right to keep and bear arms. So that was in September, October, if I'm not mistaken, of, of 2020, correct? Correct. At this point, like what happens with an FEC complaint? Do you ever hear back from the FEC? Do they tell yeah, you well, anything? Or? It was under investigation. They served pay Facebook and everything. Uh, and it was, everything was going smoothly until um, after the after the inauguration. And then after the inauguration... Uh, the investigation uh, was halted by the Biden administration. So it just sits in limbo now? Like how does... Yeah, it just, it's halted. It, it sits in limbo forever. So I'm assuming at this point you're not expecting to hear anything ever again. No, no. I mean, there are some legal steps that we can take to force them to continue the investigation and we are still discussing whether we are going to do that or not. Okay. But there are still some legal stuff, but because the investigation is not closed, it's just on hold. Right. Like permanently. <laughs> <laughs> but but there's no like timeline. There's no shot clock. If you like, for example, I work at a telecommunications company. When I get a ticket, I have an SLA. I've got a service level agreement that I have to respond to in X amount of time, blah, 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 blah. In this case, with the government, that doesn't necessarily exist unless you take it upon yourself or GOA and you take it upon yourselves to pay more legal fees to then press the appropriate buttons to get something moving. Yeah. Am I summarizing could, that correctly? Kind of? Correct. Okay. Correct. And it, just because it's moving doesn't mean it it's going to move fast. Gotcha. So do you expect to hear anything? I mean, aside from taking whatever additional steps you may take outside of that, do you expect to hear anything back ultimately from that complaint? Uh, probably not at this point. Uh, the FEC has really changed people in the past few months. So I'm not really expecting them to take it too seriously, uh, at least to the level that they were taking it at. There was a lot of movement on it and everything else. But uh, at this point, I don't expect them to um, like move on it. Um, if anything, maybe it's a shot across the bow of of like Facebook of saying, "Hey, don't do this." <laughs> and one thing that I really do like. Uh, Rob Olson is the guy who drafted it, and he's a great attorney. Uh, his draft of our complaint have been used by a bunch of other companies, including Parler and stuff like that, and some other organizations to make other FEC complaints against other tech giants. So something might have came out of it. It was the first one that went that direction and mm. it was not the last one so hopefully that draft makes it ultimately cheaper for people to retain lawyers and be able to file a similar complaint since it's a draft you just kind of 
fill in the blanks for lack yeah. of a better word. Yeah, it's cut and paste at that point. Yeah. And I know the Olsons, they are true believers. So they will, um, they're pretty much on board with letting anyone use it as a draft who wants, basically, from what I understand. At this point, given your experience at Facebook and now being an investigative journalist, social media as a whole, and, and obviously big tech is a whole behemoth of a problem on its own, but specifically for a journalist like yourself, what problems does it present to you being able to get to, as you stated earlier in our interview here, the truth ultimately? Okay, well, it's a double-edged sword. Sure. I was a journalist when I was on Facebook. I was doing it part-time before I started doing it more of a like a full-time thing. Um, Social media, they try to silence you, but social media does also does also allow you to reach people that you probably wouldn't reach or whatever there was some stories where i hit roblox and i couldn't find the forces i needed or didn't couldn't find the documents i needed so i put out a call like a bat symbol you know sure. saying, hey if if you have this let me know um and I started getting more information and I developed contacts that way. So it's actually helped me build contacts, helped me build inside sources to verify stuff. Usually it's stuff that I just need verified. Like, Hey, I'm looking for this document. If you have it, send it to me. And I make sure it comes from a second source. So what not a third source. Sure. Um, Cause you never want to go on one source. You always want to have multiple sources. So, so sometimes you sit on a big article and it's like, Man, if I can just get one more source. Gotcha. So I don't know nearly as much about like the journalist side. So I assume that there is a preferred method, like you just said, right? Having multiple sources to validate a, a specific claim. But for as much as that social media presence has brought it together and made it easier for you to reach out to people, which is exactly what I did, right? When I found you on a on YouTube and I was like, let me reach out and see see if he's willing to talk. There are negatives to it, and it feels like in your specific place, it has more to do with this blanket fact-checking as opposed to anything else that might be removing people from the ability to make their own ultimate decisions. Do you feel like that's somewhat accurate? or? Yeah, I, I do. And it's not so much the fact-checking. If fact-checking was just fact-checking, that would be great. Let's, let's check. Like, two plus two equals four. All right, that's fine. Let's fact check that. You know, if some, I've seen it where things were marked false because someone said something and the fact check was like, oh, they said that, but they actually meant this. And then you go back and you watch it and you're, and you're like, they didn't mean that. Do you so, feel like it's headline grabby? Because I feel like in this situation with the article, because the article was, uh, let me see here, false flag, or I'm sorry, false information flagging. Nope, that's not the name of the article. Where's the name of the article? Oh, here it is. Kamala Harris says she supports your Second Amendment rights. Her record proves otherwise. I mean, that title feels like if you were to just read that title, Facebook would would be able to try to flag that as false and kind of get away with it. 
But a title in media space, I feel like, is supposed to pique your interest, make you question something so that you then read the article, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I, I honestly, I don't even write my own headlines because they're not grabby enough. I'm sure. not good at writing headlines. But that's the point of a headline is to pique your interest so that you read the article, right? So if you're writing titles that yeah. could skew based on well, how well, quick you read it. Well, well, that headline is factually accurate. She did say, I support your Second Amendment rights. But then when you actually look at what she has done, it she doesn't. <laughs> right. Okay. So her her record proves otherwise. I guess in this specific context, it would be, hey, you're challenging a specific candidate in a way that we don't enjoy. Like, is that what you're getting out of this? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Like, when I posted the amicus brief, the Kamala Harris amicus brief, mm-hmm. I didn't post a headline or anything. It was just a link to the amicus brief. Just a link to the amicus brief. Was that a .gov? That was a .gov, yeah. <laughs> Okay. So there's no comment, and that was on the suggestion of uh, Robles and who's my attorney. Kind of like, dude, I think I was like, I think that they're doing this on purpose. He's like, why don't you just post the amicus brief, the direct link to the official amicus brief, and not post any comments or anything on it and see what happens. And I did, and I, I was blown away. I also I think, think what, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, I also think I also reached out to some back channels to have an internal ticket opened up to say, hey, uh, this is being marked as false and it's not. So I think by me making noise backstage that it, that might have also got me targeted as well. Interesting. And plus maybe because I used to be... Uh, Working, I used to I used to work at Facebook. Maybe that's why they tar- targeted it. I'm, they're very vindictive people. <laughs> well, I'm interested to see ultimately how it ends up. Whether or not you ever hear anything back from the FEC, and if they you do hear back, if it's just a hey man, we looked, we didn't find anything. See you later. Or if no, they actually does. come up with a little more. Well, we we have pages and pages and pages of evidence, and it's not just me. Uh, uh, there's other people listed in there. I was like the lead plaintiff on the complaint, mm-hmm. but there was other people that did the same thing that, um, that after I did, they went back and they did the same thing and they got banned as well. And, and the funny thing is I have a friend named Roger and Roger as a joke Hit on his uh, employment thing because he's retired military, medically retired military. You know, as a joke, he wrote, I work for John Crump, <laughs> which is a, it was an inside joke. I was telling him, I was like, yeah, you need to come work for me. Just like joking, you know? Sure. I was like, you know, you need to come work for me. I need my house painted and stuff. You know, it's something stupid, you know, my friend. So he put that on and he got banned. Hmm. Which was kind of funny. Is he part of the the complaint filed, or is is did he not get involved in it at that point? No, I mean he's not involved in it because he's just a average guy who just like lives. Sure. <laughs> but uh, he doesn't post anything controversial, and the only reason that we think that he could get 
possibly have gotten banned was because he wrote he worked for me and he linked to my profile <laughs> linked to my profile in his statement so they uh so they banned his account and he was like what the hell that's interesting huh well let me change and shift gears here a little bit over to what you do today um me personally, I, I, I'm more interested in your investigative journalism and the, and the things that you've done. I know before we started recording, you had told me you have well, hundreds, literally hundreds of interviews with all sorts of different people. Um, I've been able to read and look at a couple of them. I know uh, you've done like you've interviewed Caitlin Bennett, uh, uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. Meryl Rutledge, Derek LeBlanc. I mean, you've got a litany of people that you've interviewed. Is there a yeah. favorite interview or a favorite person you've gotten to talk to that you're just like, that was so awesome? Uh, I mean, all of them bring something to the table, which is in, in, incredible. Um, and I've interviewed uh, a lot of different people. I've even interviewed like the Oak Ridge Boys and the Misfits, <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm a big yeah, outside fan. of the political and, and into music even, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it's all really, really cool interviews and stuff like that. Uh, a couple people that I enjoy, I enjoyed interviewing a lot was Rhonda Uzel. Uh, she was the lead plaintiff in Uzel versus the city of Chicago, which is probably one of the top three most important Second Amendment cases ever. And the reason why I like that interview so much is because Rhonda and I, we just hit it off. We became fast friends. Uh, and uh, there's another guy named Tony Simon who runs a company called Simon Says Shooting. Uh, and he has something called Diversity Shoot, which is a two-way for everyone. Okay. He runs it out of New Jersey. And um, I've interviewed, I interviewed him and the it was a video interview. I've interviewed him several times. The first time I interviewed him, it was supposed to be like an hour interview. And uh, four hours into it, we're like, I was like, I got to go to bed. <laughs> and and uh, the reason why I liked it is because it was, it went everywhere. It started out with him talking about a video of a Karen. And like two hours later, it ended with, and that's how you get socialism. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that he's one of my favorite people to interview. How, how um, about favorite uh, article? Because like I said, I, I liked the, the one you wrote on um, Adam Langford's study of mass shootings called into question. Is there one specific for you that when you were done writing it, you were like, man, this is f- perfect? Uh let me think about that's a that's a really hard decision i've yeah, written over a thousand articles yeah absolutely hundreds of probably close hundreds. to two thousand articles uh there was let me think favorite article that i wrote um it's gonna sound silly but i wrote an article about a event called red october out in las vegas uh, and it wasn't like a serious article or anything like that where it wasn't like an ATF leak or anything like that. And it wasn't an article that got like tons and tons of traction. But the reason why I liked it 
is because it got to show the gun world not taking itself too seriously. Red October is an event that's held outside Vegas, and I can only describe it as Comic-Con meets machine guns. People go out there, and they dress up in costumes, and you know they shoot machine guns all weekend. And I, I liked it because it showed you know, that we can be Second Amendment advocates and we can be Second Amendment people, but we also don't have to take ourselves seriously 100% of the time. Is that the event where you've got people that bring all sorts of like, um, like different caliber guns, more rare guns, more interesting guns as well, just oh, as a free for all? Yes, yes. I actually got to shoot an MP40, which is my favorite gun of all time. I think I or saw MP44, that in like sorry. A Tom Clancy video game. Yeah, MP44. Mistaken. Sorry, not MP44. Okay. MP44. And uh, it's like my, one of my favorite guns of all time. And uh I've never had a chance to fire one. Like a converted semi-automatic, never had a chance to convert to fire anything. And the ammunition is really hard to find and it's really expensive. Well, the owner of Rifle Dynamics happened to have a a fully authentic, which I'm a gun collector, so fully parts matching, numbered matching firearms is like holy grail, especially okay. like MP44. And I got to fire over and over again. I probably put like 500 rounds through that the firearm. It's like my my dream gun, one of my dream guns. So just another chance to to showcase the fact that even though the 2i community is very serious about the Second Amendment, that doesn't mean they're like that 24-7. They can kick back, have fun, you know, do what they do on a regular basis. Is that oh, like yeah. really the gist of, of why you liked that article? Nice. Yeah, I like that article and one that I like, but it's more of a smart-ass reason. Sure. <laughs> is when... The uh, Regina Lombardo, who used to be the acting head of the ATF and the assistant acting head of the ATF, which is now the acting head of the ATF, Marvin Richardson met with the uh, Biden administration, um, the incoming Biden administration, the transition team, like like two days after the election. And I was able to get an article and get a picture of them meeting like uh, Regina Lombardo and Marvin Richardson, I got a picture from the meeting and I got to get it out before they got out of the meeting. Gotcha. So when they walked out of the meeting, it's like, hey, they met. This is what they were talking about. So I reported it in real time. Before they did any sort of a press release or announcement or anything. Oh, like they that. weren't going to do a press release or an announcement. Oh, okay. It That's was just a total backroom thing. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. And I got it out before they even uh, left the room. Nice. As a as a journalist, that has to be, yeah. I could see why that would be a, a cool one on uh, towards the top of your list. And I have a picture from the meeting. <laughs> How did you get that? Just somebody inside? Someone inside the meeting. Nice. They don't know who it is. Nor do they need to know. Nor do they need to know. <laughs> Well, let me go into guns a little bit uh, here, if you don't mind, and talk about uh, DRM, digital rights, and why why is it that people who are gun owners are really hesitant or, or really, in some ways, resistant even to start adding 
technology to their weapons. I mean, it's 2021. Pretty much technology has touched everything in our lives, except for, it feels like, guns. Short of maybe maybe safes. That's about it. And even then, the technology with safes is, is pretty... I mean, it's not crazy. Okay. I can answer that pretty easily. Okay. And give you an example of why. Uh, there is a coin called SafeCoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that is, is something that this company wants um, gun owners to use. And they are seeing that the banks are probably going to shut us down. So the safe coin would be tied to a firearm. So basically, by using a safe coin, it would automatically do background checks every day. And it would also be tied to the serial number. So you couldn't transfer the firearm without transferring the safe coin. And that's a registry. And gun owners are very against registries because we know exactly what happens with the registries. They lead to confiscations usually. And we have seen that with uh, people getting letters in the mail and stuff like that whenever something gets banned somewhere. So that's one of the reasons. Uh, digital rights management on 3D printed files is something that also scares uh, gun owners because, for one thing, when you 3D print a gun, uh, the big power of 3D printing is you know, it defeats a gun control because I can print something without the government knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not saying that the government shouldn't know. It's saying that the government does not have a right to know. And I, I, I don't think they have the right to know. And when I 3D print a firearm, I print it in a, in a way where they don't, they don't know because Second Amendment, right? <laughs> you know, like the bare arms. With DRM, they can actually change that. So when you download a file, that it can actually be used as a registry of like, who has it. It can log IPs. It can do all sorts of things to it as well. Um, and if we look at basically DRM, that basically shut down like all file sharing sites back in the day for music and we don't want to see that happen with firearms we don't want to see a big manufactured drm on a file and have you know have the ability to stop people from transferring that firearm file to other people and there's a lot of different reasons but those are just some of the high level reasons so you've got the database which obviously you guys are not for um, I would imagine part of it too, if you have the ability as a manufacturer to stop a firearm or uh, lock it up, for lack of a better term, that's not something I would imagine the community would be interested in either, right? If I have to, if I have to connect my weapon to the internet in order yeah, to get yeah. some like certification or something like that to unlock. Yeah the trigger guard so that I can go to the range. Like that's not, that's not feasible either. Right. Well, well, that's not unfeasible. And there's other things that people are like, well, you know, why are you against biometrics on a firearm to be able to fire it? And I can ask the same people, do you have anything biometric? And they're like, yeah, I do my phone. Like has your phone ever 
rejected your fingerprint because your fingers were too wet or you're too sweaty. And they're like, yeah. I'm like, now imagine somebody coming to kill you and your fingers are too sweaty and you pick up your firearm. You want something that's going to work every single time and not 80% of the time or 90% of the time. Sure. You want to increase your chances of being able to successfully defend yourself as much as possible. I'm not willing to give up, you know, uh, 10%, 10% chance of me, somebody being able to kill me. And you got to realize where I come from with firearms. A lot of people don't know why I am so pro 2A or pro second amendment or pro gun rights because, you know, second amendment, basically knowledge of the race that we already have. And the reason why I am pro 2A goes back to when I was a year old. I was a year old and we lived on a farm in Fairfax, which is kind of funny now because Fairfax is this sprawling <laughs> metropolis okay. that connects right to DC. But I lived in a farm in Fairfax. Uh, my father was not in the picture. So it was just my mom, me and my four older sisters and I was about a year old at the time and my mom heard something at the front door so she went to the front door she looked out because she thought she heard somebody juggling the door she looked out she didn't see anyone so she was like all right started going back into where she was coming from and she heard a window downstairs break in the basement we have a door that went out to the backyard from the basement so she's like okay now there's someone trying to come in. So she went and got her 38 sub Nova's revolver, which at the time was known as Saturday night specials. Yeah. And she went downstairs and what she saw downstairs was a masked guy with a knife. So she he was in the house and my mom had me a one year old and my four older sisters upstairs. And she told him, Hey, you get out, get out now or I'm going to shoot you. And he's like, you're not going to shoot me. My mom's like, if you take one more step, I will shoot you. And he's like, no, you won't. And he took that step. And my mom, unfortunately had to shoot. Um, but without that firearm, I don't know if I would be here right now. I don't know if my mom would be here or my sisters would be here or what, what's going to happen. He knew that there was, that there was people in the house. He knew that there were only women in the house and he was definitely wasn't up to no good. He had a weapon, and I don't think he was there to rob any, rob the place. Especially when he was like not trying to be quiet or anything else, sneak around and grab stuff. So without that firearm, I I don't know what would have happened, but I'm pretty sure it would not have been good. Hmm, that's a pretty wild story, man. Yeah, I'm glad <laughs> that uh, that your your mom and your sisters and yourself were you know, save for many potential danger. Um, man, that's pretty, yeah. that's, do, do you feel like a lot of people have not stories similar to that per se, but, uh, thoughts or ideas as to be able to protect themselves in a situation like that comes up and they want to feel comfortable being able to do that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I've, I've talked to people all the time that have similar stories or other stories. Um, uh, I have a, guy that I know. Um, he runs uh, MJ Firearms Training. He was outside of Chicago 
where he's from. And he has a concealed carry permit for Illinois. And a couple members of the Latin Kings, which is a street gang, started firing shots off at him and started chasing him. And the whole reason why they were firing shots at him and chasing him because they thought he was someone he wasn't. It was a mistaken identity. But those guys never done anything to these guys. Have no idea what he is. Not a gangster or anything like that. It was just a case of mistaken identities. But he was able to use his firearm to fire back. And he, I think he, you can say he had a lot more training than they did because he was a lot more successful with the shot placements. Um, and so it's, he saved his life because they were literally firing their guns at him. And if he didn't have a gun, and let's say he was just walking around because he was like, oh, nothing's going to happen to me because I don't do anything wrong and I stay away from the wrong crowds and I stay away from the wrong wrong places. And these two guys were just driving by and they mistook, mistook him for someone else. Yeah. Again, that's that's wild. But I, I hear stories like that a lot, especially being probably more than the usual person here because the, the field I work in. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's probably people that want to tell you their story all the time, given given your your time with Ammo Land and and uh, obviously being the director of the GOA in Virginia. There, uh, I'm sure you hear that more often than most. But uh, yeah, there there was a 13 year old out in Las Vegas that. Uh, Defended him and his and his nine year old sister from a uh, a child molester that was just got out of prison that broke into their house. He brought his dad's AK and was able to defend him him and his sister. I mean, it's gonna scar that kid for life, but he's alive. Sure. Um, and then the pregnant woman in in Florida uh, that happened about a few months ago where uh, a couple of people broke into her house and she had an, an, an AR and was able to fight back. What and do and you... I, yeah, I have a ahead, friend, Joe. I have a friend named Steven Williford. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I can't say I am. Uh, there was a guy that shot up a church uh, down in Sandy Springs, Texas. And uh, the guy who grabbed his a- his AR and he only had seven rounds in it and ran out, ran out uh, and was able to uh, take down the shooter with his AR barefoot. Um, the guy, uh, he he shot the guy. The guy got in his car and they and he jumped in another guy's car and they were able to um, chase him down and. The guy was wounded, so the guy ended up taking his own life. But uh, he had plans to, apparently he wrote that he was going to go shoot up another church, and Stephen Williford stopped him. And I certainly don't want to take away any of these people's experiences and their abilities to be able to protect themselves, obviously, in these situations. But what do you say to people who will point to you know, negligent discharges by kids in a home or school shootings or, or those situations. What do you say to people like that who might use those as a case to say, hey, we need to do something about these guns? Okay. A couple of different things. Sure. A uh, gun, um, and you and, and you can verify this. If, uh, crime research actually is a pretty good uh, research for this, but crime research actually has this. 
a gun is four times more likely to be used in self-defense than in any type of negligent discharge or or in a, a crime. So there is that. So you're actually creating more of a safety issue by banning firearms. And there are things that people can do that would, you know, prevent um, kids from getting guns and whatnot. Education is a big thing. My kids are educated on firearms. My firearms are also in a in a way in a place where they can't get to them. I'm not saying that the government should mandate that at all because I don't think the government has any business mandating it. But there are ways to mitigate uh, uh, ND with kids or anything else like that. Getting back to the school shooting thing, um, school shootings are exceedingly rare. And when there is one school shooting, a lot of times there's one shortly after that. And I think we have an issue with actually making the shooters into quasi celebrities. Mm. That's one of the reasons why I don't use their names. They, there's actually a study and I can send you the study that says that 80% of shooters that they've talked to when asked why they did it, one of the reasons they always give is to be known. Yeah. Notoriety. Yeah. 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 Uh, including, uh, the Aurora, Aurora theater shooting, I believe him, uh, Dylan Roof is another, uh, I said his name. I should, don't usually want to say their names, but the, uh, the church shooter down in Atlanta, they want their names to be out there and known. And uh, even though I just slipped up there, I try not to ever say their names and we don't run pictures of them, of, you know, the guy out in Las Vegas or anything. We don't, do that um i i won't do that at least in my articles and so do you feel like as a whole well maybe not as a whole right from our media right we are in some ways unintentionally glorifying or giving them the the podium that they were looking for which we is why they committed the atrocities that they've done we are definitely incentivizing them and I talked to someone that off the record, so I'm not going to say where, but they sure. are on a major cable news network. And I talked to them exactly about what, what I'm talking about right now. I was like, uh, it's out there. I mean, the studies are out there showing a lot of the reasons why these mass murderers are doing their crimes is because they want to be known. It was like, why, does your um, organization put out their names? And what I was told was, well, you know, other people are going to do it and people are going to want to know what their names is, are. So they're going to go to either them or they're going to go to us. So we're going to put their names out there because we, we want people to come to us for most the most information possible. And if they're going to go somewhere else because we're not printing their names, it's worth it for us. So by that logic, wouldn't it be more beneficial for for a group like the GOA or, or any other guns rights group to work to lobby to have it, 
you know, be illegal to print or publish the names of people who commit acts like that? Uh, absolutely not, because th- that is, is, is something that I don't want, I don't do, and I won't do. But at the same time, it it shouldn't be illegal for them to print the name. Um, I think that will get into a First Amendment issue right there. They have every right to print the name. Maybe they shouldn't print the name. I mean, I make a personal choice not to. Right. But they right. have the right to. I mean, that's that's their decision whether to print the name or not. That's something that they have to decide. But I feel like when it comes to individual choice, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, John, but you on a personal level, on an individual level, as a journalist, make the conscious choice not to do that. Whereas if you get into a large behemoth media company, there are these, you know, faceless figureheads that are that care more about the profit margin than they do about the integrity of reporting. I mean, at the end of the day, that's where that's coming from, right? Yeah, it is. That's one of the reasons why I won't go work for a large media organization. I mean, I've had opportunities to go work for like really big media organizations, and I've always said no uh, for more money. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel that it's I, I want to be able to have more control. I want to be able to look at myself in the mirror in the morning. So you feel like you would lose some journalistic integrity on on your own part by having to go and and work for a company that's going to tell you what you're going to write and how you're going to write it? Well, that and even if you don't write it the way that they want you to write it, they will always go back and change it to make it the way they wanted to write it. (laughs) All right. well, Well, final word, if I may, is there a solution to you know, uh, shootings like that. Is there a, a way to go about having, uh, having your cake and eating it too? Oh, you got to look at, you, you don't, you don't, you don't want to look at the call, the, you don't want to look at the tool being used. You want to look at the actual calls. Okay. And there's some organizations out there that are doing a great job of doing that. Walk to talk America is one that I can think of right off the top of my head. And we, Joe Rogan once said, we have a mental health problem disguised as a gun problem. Yeah. And I think we need to get to um, the area. I, I'm against uh, I'm against socialized medicine <laughs> in most cases. But with mental health, uh, I do believe those people, a lot of those people aren't capable of taking care of themselves. So I do think we need some better, better mental health system in the country. And you think that'll impact or lessen the amount of, and I know you said it's it's extremely rare, but unfortunately it still hits the news and, and yeah, everyone gets worried about it, right? It's yeah, kind of like uh, kid kids being kidnapped in the nineties. Well, right? Yeah, it's it's yeah, the kids being kidnapped in the nineties. <laughs> it was or, pretty rare, but it was made such a big deal that everybody thought their kid was going to get snatched off the front porch. Yeah, well, you can put it this way, right? You have a better chance of being killed by a bed sheet than in a, in being killed in a school shooting. Um, and I'm gonna I have like, to look that one up. Yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy. Uh, 900 people a year 
get killed by accidentally getting red, <laughs> wrapped up in no veggies. No way. You're yeah, joking. it's crazy, right? No. No not, way. Yeah, it's crazy. Look it up. It's like it's 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 really crazy. And also, you gotta also break it down to per capita. Maybe it's eight hundred. It's something like that. Dude, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, you looked it up. <laughs> I'm pulling it up right now, yeah. and according to well, I don't know if this is a legitimate site, so I should probably not. Yeah, but I actually looked it up on <laughs> like the consumer safety board. Yeah, that's up from three hundred and twenty seven in the year two thousand. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's like there's an epidemic of bed sheet deaths. <laughs> okay. Who knows? So that's a but new also, one. I've not heard I've not heard a comparison to that. Yeah. Also you have to look at per capita too. Per capita, the United States isn't even in the top 10. In what? School shootings? Yeah, in uh, mass shootings. Oh, mass shootings. Okay. Yeah. I don't think anyone really breaks it down into school. be interesting to actually break it down. But yeah, uh, if you look it up per capita, mass shootings per year... um, Yeah, I'm uh, to pull it up right now, just off offhand, but it looks like, according to the Crime Prevention Research Center, which I believe you cited in the article with Adam Lankford, uh, Norway is at one point eight 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 per capita, and the United States is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleventh at point zero eight nine. Yeah, I believe it's it was eleven. Then Serbia, France, Macedonia, Albania, Slovakia, Switzerland, Finland, Belgium, and the Czech Republic. Yeah, people don't hear that though, right? I mean, I didn't know that until now, but I guess you know you compare it against per capita. Obviously, a smaller country, one mass shooting might make that. Or yeah, a I mean, of it's, mass it's, shootings. it's yeah. You get into this weird number game, though, John. Right? Is that yeah, a fair statement? Is. Like when people yeah, go to statistics. It, it they look at a statistic, and I feel like a lot of people can extrapolate a lot from just a statistic. Yeah, it, it exactly it is, and that's exactly why you bring it up, because one side's going to bring up per capita, the other side's going to bring over overall. Yeah, well, I hope that one of your next articles soon, you try to do some research on how many people get killed by bedsheets per capita throughout the world. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I actually started that a little bit, but I don't know who would run it. <laughs> no, well, that's fair. I shouldn't joke about it, but yeah. Well, yeah, I you... appreciate your time, John. Um, for anybody listening, if you've gotten this far, I'm going to put it at the beginning, but ammoland.com, uh, it's crump.com, right? Or is it crumpy.com? Crumpy.com. Crumpy with a Y, crumpy.com. Uh, check them out on YouTube, John Crump News, and check them out, John Crump Live. I mean, live streams pretty much like five six times a week there's a lot of great content out there uh please check out john and once again thank you man for all your time thank you